my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos' picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like, I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get ready for Smart Money Happy Hour. Pull up a chair, it's the happy hour you wish your friends were having. Mix two money experts with some hot takes and a splash of nostalgia, and you get me, George Camel. And me, Rachel Cruz, talking unfiltered about what's going on in the world, pop culture, and how to afford a life you love. We're talking money, celebrity budgets, and my budget for my two French Bulldogs. It's a lot. (laughs) You'll hear it all on Smart Money Happy Hour. Listen on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Math & Magic, a production of iHeartRadio. It was probably one of the smartest marketing deals I ever did because for $10,000, we were on every coffee cup in the hand. I heard the publisher of the New York Times at that moment was screaming about the internet and what are we going to do with it? And somebody pointed out he was holding a Sidewalk.com coffee well, cup in that. his hand. I'm Bob Pittman, and welcome to Math & Magic. On each episode, I chat with someone I truly admire to explore their stories from the frontiers of marketing. I've got Gail Troberman here with me. Gail is the CMO of iHeart, so we know each other very well and have gone through. About to be better. About to be better, and we've gone through some, you know, trials and tribulations and battles, (laughs) and we've been in foxholes and all of that. But on our show, we talk about math and magic. This is about people who are mathematicians or magicians. Gail is one of those magicians. She's comfortable with math and she does know what two plus two is. <laughs> I can rock excel when needed. But we always start our episodes with a feature we called you in 60 seconds. We'll jump in if you don't mind. Do you prefer pancakes or waffles? Ah, uh, I wish either, but uh, keto these days, so neither. Rhode Island or New York? 
Ocean State all the way. Samantha or Darren Stevens, of Bewitched, of course. Uh, Darren Stevens, who oddly influenced my life and decision to become a copywriter at an early age. Sunrise or sunsets? Sunsets, definitely. Sleep in. East Coast or West Coast? Lately, I'm kind of by everything, so hard to choose. But so pick one. I guess at the moment, L.A. Lightning or thunder? Thunder, power of sound, all the way. Sweet or salty? Salty and crunchy. Madonna or Cher? I've learned in life you never choose between divas, so love them both. We'll put them at a tie. It's about to get harder here. Secret talent. I think my talent would be curating people. Childhood hero. Uh, Jim Henson, Muppets all in. First job. Izzy's kosher catering. Historical idol. Gloria Steinem. Worst fashion trend you've participated in? Oh, the bi-level haircut with half a shaved head in the 80s has to be my biggest mistake. <laughs> What's your favorite ice cream flavor? Pistachio. And our final question in the lightning round, so appropriate for us, best live concert. REM a bunch of years ago. We were supposed to see them in Seattle and my highly responsible wife oddly lost the tickets and I tortured her every time I heard an REM song for several years. So we could have seen them, but we didn't. And so years later, she surprised me with front row center seats at an REM show in Chicago and it was just magic. And Michael Stipe, after every song, handed me the lyrics and it was just a crazy, fun, unexpected magic night of music. That is magic. So tell me and tell all of us how on earth someone from Rhode Island. You say that with disdain. No, no, no just, I'm from Mississippi. <laughs> There's no such thing as disdain. We're all small states, you know, small yeah, state Otherwise people. known as crime town. Yeah, right. Tell us a little bit about how you got your mojo with marketing. I mean, how did you decide I'm a marketer and when did you decide that's my calling in life? Fascinating. I'm not sure I ever decided to be a marketer. Most of my career, you know, I always refer to it as effective stumbling. I've always sort of followed passions and ideas and things that make sense without overthinking them. I'm not a big planner and, you know, in 10 years I must get to here and these are the steps that lead me there. Sometimes I've answered that question with the inspiration being Bewitched being my favorite show as a kid. And I was like, wow, these guys get paid to sit around and make up crazy ideas and then go pitch them to people. And no matter what job I've had, and I've been on pretty much every side of the marketing table, client, agency, media company, creative, in every job, I've realized like you kind of follow great people and where your passion seems to be, and you'll find your way to adding some value, being of use. And somehow that always kept pulling me back in and around content and marketing. So when did you say, I'm a marketer? I mean, there has to be a moment in your career when you say, okay, this is it, I'm a marketer. Well, it's funny. I started a big ad agency wanting to be a copywriter, right? My bewitched vision of like these great offices and, you know, sitting around with your feet up and a cocktail and making up sentences. And You um, do have a beer here today. I do. It's a a bourbon, actually. It's a bourbon. Yeah. 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 More keto friendly. So I took a job at a big agency. First place they put me was in PR instead of creative. And they said, oh, we'll move you around every like month or two. We'll move you to a new area. You'll find the right group. They'll promote you and you'll be a copywriter. And in 30 days, I got promoted before I ever moved and I became a PR person. And, you know, I still look back at the early years in PR and go, now we call it earned media. But when you have to earn it, you really learn the difference quickly between a good idea or a good pitch and a bad pitch. When you have to get on the phone and actually talk to another human and try to pitch them an idea cold 
which was a lot of what PR was back in the day, you really quickly learned if you were wasting people's time, if you had something worth hearing and how to get to it in a minute. I still look back at all those PR years of really earning the ideas and earning the press and the coverage is still a lot of what we have to do as marketers today. But I don't think I really became a marketer or would declare myself one until I got to Microsoft. And then I started marketing early internet properties at Microsoft, you know, Sidewalk, CarPoint, Expedia, HomeAdvisor. And then I was like, oh my God, I'm doing this thing called marketing on this thing called the internet that no one's ever done before. And it was just a fun, giant playground of new and learning. So all those lessons you learned, mm-hmm. slugging it out, trying to get free <laughs> media, PR. <laughs> yeah. What did you apply when you went to Microsoft? You know, you were in the wild, wild west at that moment. People Mm -hmm. sort of forget that nobody believed they needed to be on the Internet. The big sales pitch was not how you're going to be on the Internet. You need to be on the Internet. I'm not sure I need to be on the Internet. It's hard to imagine now, but that was the challenge, right? Like getting marketers to believe the Internet mattered way back when was job one back in the early ad days. So what did you bring to it from your uh, From the PR days, you learned the idea of the possible. Right. Anything was possible. And Microsoft was sort of a place to like test that exponentially. Right. Whatever it was, you could see it. There was a way to find somebody who could connect you to it. Someone who knew someone. There was a way to pitch it. There was a way to get somebody to write something about a product. And it might take 10 tries to find a pitch that worked. But when you did. It was possible. One of my favorite stories about early Microsoft marketing was we were launching the city guide called Sidewalk. And New York was one of our first markets. And we were trying to be of the city, relevant, local, but we had like teeny, 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 tiny marketing budget. So we weren't going to go buy giant ads or do TV. And so we were like, what's iconic to New York? And at the time, it was those coffee cups and delis. It was pre-Starbucks. Right. There were coffee cups with the Greek, you know, with the urn, those coffee cups. We're like, you know, what if we could get on those coffee cups? And so we found the dude who distributes the coffee cups and he's in like a warehouse in Queens. And we said, what would it cost? We'll pay to print the cups. We just want to put sidewalk.com on them. And again, none of these things have been done before. It sounds normal now. And he was like, what do you mean you're going to print the cups? We negotiated with the dude and it turned out he wanted $10,000 in cash. And for a week, we would own every coffee cup if we gave him $10,000 in cash. We'd print them and it would say sidewalk.com instead of the urn. And it was probably one of the smartest marketing deals I ever did. Because for $10,000, we were on every coffee cup in the hand. I heard the publisher of the New York Times at that moment was screaming about the internet and what are we going to do with it? And somebody pointed out he was holding a sidewalk.com coffee cup in his hand. Do you have one of those cups? You know, I do somewhere in a box, somewhere in a garage. (laughs) So at Microsoft, it was the wild, wild west. I was at AOL at the time. We were sort of the Facebook, Google at the moment. It was the, sort of the battle of the giants at the moment. What did you learn from that experience that you think people miss today? I think it goes to the premise of the show, right? Where's the balance between math and magic, right? Too much of one and you're going to do some crazy idea that won't catch and might win an award, but isn't going to move a lot of product. I remember the days when I I started running advertising at Microsoft and the creative presentation would be three hours and the media people would be lucky to get 15 minutes at the end when we ran over, it might get rescheduled. And then slowly through this last decade, the media people would start and they'd get three hours and the creatives would be lucky to get 15 or 20 minutes to present 
the entire campaign idea that was going to go into the math. Microsoft was such an engineering, math-driven culture, and I tend to be more of an idea-first, creative person. And then let's look at the math and support it and learn quickly. So learning to balance the two, the early internet was all about that. Oh my God, we have data right now. We're running ads. Are people going to sidewalk.com or are they not? Was traffic up exponentially the week we put the coffee cups in market? It was. If it wasn't, we would know. And we'd never had that real-time access to data. I think at some point in recent years, probably the pendulum has swung too far back and we're looking at math without context for whether those numbers really mean things. Are right. they real people or are they bots or clicks that go nowhere? Are they humans who are embracing your message and buying your products? So if you look at it today, we do business with a lot of great marketers. The thrill of our job is we actually get to stick <laughs> our nose in everybody else's marketing business. Yeah, it never gets boring. Talking about math and magic, talking about these early lessons, what fundamental do you think is missing? Mm. who is the arbiter of the math and the magic, right? There's so few people. You have a great sense of both. Most people tend to excel in one and are a little more deficient in the other. But how do you balance the two and how do you find that rare unicorn who can balance the math and the magic? I'm also a huge believer in teams, teams who can push each other and do a little Batman Robin and, you know, can actually balance math and magic I don't think most management structures are set up for teams very well, but I think that if we're going to find that good balance, we're going to have to get better at teamwork and collaboration. So let me jump back sure. a little bit. When you were starting out, there's a story about you and some diamonds. Can you tell <laughs> us the story? My very, very, very first job before I got promoted in PR, they put me answering phones. I'm at a giant ad agency, NWR, that had the De Beers business. You know, they are the main people who created the Diamond is Forever line. I was sitting there and I'm making like, I don't know, like $13,000 a year and wondering if I should ask my parents for money to pay my phone bill again. And um, and there were these crazy power women and they were brilliant. Brilliant, and they lived in a world I'd never even seen, right? They were like people who could pick up the phone and change the cover of Vogue tomorrow. They were like, you, you, out there, the desk, you, here, here, you, you, yeah, you, take this, take this piece of jewelry. And they'd throw like some necklace at me and they'd go, this needs to get over to Harper's in an hour and insure it for $3 million. And I'd be like, afraid to touch it. I am like Lena Dunham in Girls and I'm living and designing women in the 80s full of shoulder pads and diamonds. And it was entertaining and fascinating. And when you watched what they really did and how power got brokered, it was a unbelievable learning. I probably only sat there for about two weeks before they realized I wasn't the De Beers person. <laughs> but you got the diamonds. But yeah, I got diamonds safely to Harper's and you know, I never lost anything worth millions of dollars. So, so yeah. let's go back to Rhode Island. I'm mm -hmm. going even farther back. Ah, yes. What is it in your nature... <laughs> nurture. Mm -hmm. What is it in you that has made you this great marketer? I was an adopted only child growing up in suburban Rhode Island. You know, there's sort of pros and cons of that, right? I got lots of attention and time with adults. Pretty early on as a little kid, I learned the power of conversation, the power of having something to say, sitting at the table with grown-ups, being able to banter and listen. And, you know, most of my jobs here at iHeart, I spend a good amount of my life, you know, pitching ideas. So I learned to listen and understand where people were at, their priorities, their mood, their nuances, and find my way into those adult conversations. And that's what we're all doing. 
creating the ideas sometimes is easier than pitching and selling and finding your way into the right conversation with the right people at the right moment where something actually will land. So you're known here as a great writer. Were you always a great writer? Yeah, I think I've always probably instinctively been drawn to words. I'm a horrific artist. <laughs> I can't draw at all. Um, my math is is okay, but words always fascinated me. And you know, like I said, conversation. I grew up in a family of people who talked, and that's how things were communicated. It was all out in the open, good or bad. It was always said. It's funny. I married someone who grew up in a family where it was never said. And you had to infer. So, you know, I've always seen words as the way to accomplish, the way to get heard, the way to relate to people, the way to get what you wanted in life. And I think great writing comes from great conversation. More on math and magic right after this quick break. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure, I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. More Than a Movie is back with season two of the award winning film podcast, and this time with a lot more movies. I'm your host, Alex Fumero, and each week I'm going to talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the OG spy kid, Alexa Penavega. You had Carlo Gugino, who's the coolest mom ever. You had Antonio, who's handsome, amazing, charismatic. And then Carmen and Juni. I felt like a lot of other kids felt like this could be me. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Every episode will feature interviews with the biggest actors, directors, writers, and producers behind your favorite films and tap into the history of Latinos in film. Listen to More Than a Movie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. On Purpose is dedicated to helping you be happier, healthier, and more healed. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how he got comfortable with fear, navigating the changes in relationships, and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. 
This conversation shows a never-seen-before side to Orlando Bloom and his unique life journey. I think we all struggle sometimes to really deeply believe that we are enough, that we're valued, that we're valuable. You know, we're imprinted by our parents from the age of zero to seven, right? Mm. I'm constantly trying to go like, how do I detach from my from this idea of what do, is that? Is that my baggage? I look like my baggage. I mean, I know. Okay, that's mine. Let's unpack that. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Math and Magic. We're here with Gail Troberman. So we're back to the present. Yes. You talk a lot about culture, brands, products, and culture. Mm -hmm. Give us a little of your view on that and enlighten us. You know, there's the product and that's the thing and it does whatever it does. It has a function. And then there's brands and brands are things you have emotional attachments to. Why am I drinking this bourbon and not another one? You know, you like to say rationally that I like it because it's the taste and it's, you know, made this way and filtered this way and aged this way. But the reality is I love the packaging. You know, I'm drawn to the idea behind this brand. It feels right to me. Branding done well is when a brand really knows who they are. At Microsoft, I had so many great opportunities to inherit insanely powerful brands, right? Like Windows. The world's businesses run on a thing called Windows or Office. And the role they play in the world and society, it's insane, right? And then, you know, you have to go market that. And there's just certain things that might be the coolest, most kick-ass, crazy idea ever, but Windows shouldn't do it. I remember once seeing one of the global teams, you never quite knew what would happen when you gave the briefs and the money out around the world. And in one country, we were launching Windows 7 at the time, and it was just such a bad idea. Somebody had decided to execute for a brand with the gravitas of Windows. It was the, um, it was the Windows 7 Whopper, and it was seven patties. And it made national news here in the States because it was just such an insanely wrong idea for a brand like Windows. But there were brands like Xbox or Bing that could do crazy stunts and things because they were new brands or they were grounded in entertainment and fun. And I think it's like humans, you know, there's places where I can show up and, you know, Gail belongs and I'm comfortable and I'm going to have a great time. And then there's places where I might get invited, but maybe I shouldn't be there. Or if I'm there, maybe I should adapt my behavior to the norms and modes of this place. And so building a great brand means being honest about who you are, good and bad. And then finding the partners. We say it all the time at iHeart, right? We have these shows with these great friendships and relationships with millions and millions of consumers. A brand can pop in and be a guest, but they can't really take over that relationship. And some brands fit naturally. And some, maybe it's a little more awkward when they show up in a studio or on air live. And maybe they're better in a rehearsed or recorded setting. Going to your point about knowing who you are, Graydon Carter did a fantastic job editing Vanity Fair. He had this sort of uncanny ability to say that belongs in Vanity Fair and that doesn't. Mm -hmm. And if you said why, I looked at I can't understand why, but he's right. It sort of makes Vanity Fair feel like Vanity Fair. He's a great keeper of the vision. Mm -hmm. Who is the keeper of the vision for these brands and who should it be mm. to sort of say it's staying appropriate for the culture, that you're not doing 
the Windows 7 Whopper? Yeah, exactly. It's a really good question because I think a lot of how the marketing ecosystem has changed. You know, if you look back, a diamond is forever, right? De Beers, you know, that tagline, I actually had the joyous task one day of taking the woman who wrote it to the hair salon. She was 90 at the time. And, um, And that line endured for so long because there were keepers of the line, right? There was an agency that had been on that business for decades. There were people who had worked on that business for for decades. There were clients who had been at De Beers for decades and and had learned it and it had been passed down like a legacy to the next generation of keepers of. In today's ecosystem, jobs are much more transient in marketing. We all bounce around much faster. Agency relationships are not the marriages they used to be. They're more kind of flirtations and flings. And, you know, without that, it's very easy to look away, get distracted and start trying to build an identity based on who you want to be and maybe not as grounded in the truth of who you are. I've had the luxury of working with some of the greatest creatives in the industry. And and one of the things that I think external agencies bring that clients sometimes are going to have a harder time is truth. A great agency will show up and tell you the things you don't want to hear and keep you honest to who you are and how you can show up in the world. All the best relationships at Microsoft that we had, they were highly collaborative and highly contentious, but the trust and love and respect was always there for what we each had to get done. Well, many of my closest friends are still from those errors of screaming at each other at midnight about taglines. Well, you and I <laughs> agree on this, and I don't think everybody does. Speak the truth. Yes. And no matter how tough it is, we'll have a fight, we'll have an argument, but we're in search of winning, not in search of you give me a little of something you don't think's right, and I'll give you a little something I think's not right, and we'll wind up with a crappy product. That is true. Of the things we fight about, it is never that. It's it's always get it right. I don't need to be right. Right. So in an organization, big organization, we're 12,000 people. You've worked in Microsoft that's much larger than that. I've worked in bigger ones and smaller ones. Mm -hmm. How does an organization build that capability to let someone say, that's not us. No, not a whopper. Mm -hmm. So much comes, I think, from leadership and culture. Microsoft spent 16 years there and I got there fairly early on in my career. So I look at that as where I really grew up as a marketer. There were good years and bad years. There were great projects. There were massive failures. But the one thing about that culture that was always true was there was a huge appetite for truth and honesty. And I remember the first email I ever got from Bill Gates when we'd launch Sidewalk and we're like, oh my God, look at the numbers, week one, Seattle Sidewalk, you know? And he was like, yeah, 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 that's great. What isn't working? And it was like this light bulb moment for me. And I think culture has to be set by leaders in an organization. And if you see the people above you speaking truth, accepting blame, being accountable, and they create a culture where there's not punishment or penalty for being wrong. There's embracing and learning fast and rewarding those behaviors. That was definitely the culture of Bill and Steve and the early Microsoft team. So that's definitely my mode. I hope I instill that in others. It's not always easy. It's so hard for all of us as humans to admit when we're wrong and take accountability and blame. But I do think that tends to be on brand for me. What advice would you have mm-hmm. for someone who's in an organization Mm -hmm. and wants to speak the truth, wants to say they made a mistake, Mm -hmm. but they know the organization's going to kill them. Going to reject them for it. How should they handle it in that organization? 
sort of all of the best moves in my career and probably where I've accomplished the best work has always been when I'm working with or for people I really trust. So my first piece of advice to people would be find the person that you do trust and ask them for advice or tell them what's going on and see if they can't help you. Maybe if your manager isn't that person, having mentors and sort of trusted advisors or, you know, confidants, it's so important. Tell them, get advice, and try to find your way. And if that's not where you're working, go find another job. There's a million of them. You know, as I talk to and I mentor young people in the industry, I thought it was bad when I was doing my crappy job and I was hating my life, messengering diamonds around, going, what have I done? Why did I do all this work in college to do this? And I'd go out and have a bourbon with my friends and laugh about it and get up and do it again. Now, the pressure on people in the workforce and your first jobs is instead of going out and admitting that you've got a crappy entry-level job and you're going to learn your way through it and <laughs> laugh about it and move on, you have to go Instagram your great job and all the amazing things that are happening and put on this other face of success when you really haven't found it yet. So you have a great idea in a company. Mm -hmm. We talk about internally that, you know, what really makes the difference here is an epiphany or an insight. Yeah. The rest of it's just, we're making the trains run. Mm -hmm. But what really makes the company great and gives us a win is, ah, I got it. Everybody's got one of those. I don't care who they are in this company. Mm -hmm. One day they wake up and go, I've got it. How do you take that idea and share it with someone in a way that can be heard and they can make a difference? It's going to really vary depending probably on the company, the culture, the kind of position you're in. But my experience and you know, one of the luxuries of this job is, right, we get to work with a lot of the great CMOs and CEOs and industry after industry, medium business, giant corporation. I'm sure if whatever person in this company had their epiphany moment and sent you an email, I suspect nothing bad would come of that for someone. Whether your idea gets dismissed or embraced or they agree or they don't agree, I think every great leader would love a person in the company with the guts to stand up and say, hey, I had a great idea. Shoot an email over and I don't think it'll hurt you. I think it'll only get you noticed. Should they blast it out or should they tell only <laughs> their supervisor? Ooh. It definitely depends on the culture in a company. But I'd say if you really think you have a great idea, go up a level or two or four or five. And I think a lot of times people in the C-suite are actually a little more removed from new ideas and thinking and they're working with that sort of same leadership team all the time. So I'd take the leap. I don't think anyone's ever gotten fired for one email with a good idea. Just make sure it's a good idea and you've done your homework on it. We've talked a little bit about the women and the advertising business early in your career, very powerful women. What powerful woman did you see that maybe was your role model or set a tone that today you're trying to emulate for all the women who look up to you and say, that's my role model. I've had the luxury, you know, and I think as a woman, you know, of my increasing years to have worked for a you're lot a of badass women in my uh, in my day. Um, I've actually been really fortunate. You know, at Microsoft, I worked for a couple of really astounding women. But there's one person, there's really only one person, I think, in my career that I really called a mentor. And we worked together very briefly at Microsoft. And she was sort of running the New York sidewalk business at the time. Uh, her name was Chella Irvine. And she's just, just genius. I was such a creative person and she was just such, everything to her was so logical and concise and planned. And she was that person through my career who was always able to look me in the eye and be, I, I took a job once and I don't think she approved very much of the decision. I already made it. And she just said to me, you know, that sounds meaty and prestigious. And, um, was you know, it? 
No, (laughs) it sounded good on paper. It was brutal. But my advice to people is always find that person who thinks like you don't. It's really easy to surround yourself with people who have skills like you, who have your same sense of humor, who see the world the way you do, and they're part of your tribe. And that's easy. The people who make you better are the people who are just so different. And you look at them and you go, wow, I never in a million years would have thought that or said that. And if you collaborate with them, you really learn. And, and she challenged me through my career. Quite By the way, I, I want to give you a compliment because I work with you a lot, <laughs> is that you do pick up things from people. And I see <laughs> you, somebody has a great idea and you go, wow, got it. Yeah, As exactly. As opposed to it's their idea, yeah. I can't touch it. Yeah, if the ideas have to all come from me, we're in trouble. It's the ability to spot them that it's makes a, great marketers. It's a great talent. So you went to this job that mm-hmm. turned out not to be so meaty and wonderful. What's sort of the worst failure, that miserable moment, and how did you get out of it? <laughs> Ooh, miserable days. At Microsoft, everything felt just like life or death. There's a beautiful intensity around that. You would spend months and months and months on, you know, an idea or a campaign or strategy. At one point, uh, we had been working for two years, two whole years, trying to convince the leadership at the moment in Microsoft Corporation that we needed to change the logo. It was the entire word Microsoft with that little niche in the M. And we were in a mobile era and it didn't fit. Somebody had just decided once to cut the M off. And that was becoming what Microsoft around the world was as a brand. And we're like, we need a mark and then we need an identity system and we need to rethink visually who we are as a brand in this visual era. The first year we just came in with the idea and we got thrown out of Steve Ballmer's office. The next year we did all the research. We did the brand identity company. We did, it was probably 18 months of like really crazy amount of work. And we went in and same thing. He kind of threw me out of his office and he was like, I'm not changing every sign and every business card. And and it just seemed like this enormous like undertaking. It's funny because part of the end of that story is a little bit of how I landed here with you was you were like, I think I'm going to change the name of the company. And I was like, Hmm, that's a little odd. I heard media. I don't know. And we wrestled through the pros and cons. And then you said something like, yeah, we're going to do it. And we're going to do it in like six weeks. You want to help changing everything felt impossible. And yet when you broke it down, it was a series of, it might've been a hundred page spreadsheet, but you were like, there's just a series of places the brand appears. What does it cost? Do it. Don't do it. Change it, paint over it. But the key learning for me there is continuing to see the possibility and continuing to fight even when you lose, because that still was the right idea. And eventually it wasn't me. Someone else got the leadership of the company to make the right decision to make that change. So, you know, you're going to win some and lose some, but the uh, right idea and the right moment is the key. You worked through some ad agencies. Mm -hmm. You worked at Microsoft. You worked Mm -hmm. around it. There's always somebody somewhere in your career that just wants to get you. And you're not being paranoid. They really do want to get you. (laughs) It does happen. Did you ever have one of those? And how did you handle them? (laughs) I have had them. Sometimes I've handled it well. Sometimes I haven't. You know, I always said if I were going to write a business book, the topic I would cover is misread intentions. And the thing I've learned about myself and the thing I've probably armed my assassins with on my not best days, and sometimes I've restrained myself and been more methodical about how to manage my interactions with the people who, they just don't get you. You know, we had some horrific offsite once on some team that just wasn't gelling. And, and I'll tell you, it was the smartest group of humans I'd ever worked with. By far, everyone on that team was just a genius, but we just didn't 
collaborate well. We all saw things from these different perspectives and we were in functional areas which exacerbated our different way of thinking, creative, media, research, PR. And we had some offsite and my boss at the time, who I am still very good friends with, basically said, I'm going to, in the next two days at this lodge up in the Northwest, you're either going to work your shit out or I'm going to fire all of you. Here's your moderator, go crazy. And it was brutal. And we had to really be honest with each other about how I thought about you where my perceptions came from. And, oh, my God, hearing people who really disliked you, like deep-rooted hate sometimes for you, who you'd been working with for years, and you knew you didn't groove, but you were like, wow. And there were tears, and there was yelling, and it was really a pivotal thing that I learned that the biggest mistake people tend to make about me in my career is I think fast, I talk fast, I, oh, that idea, that idea. I'm not always good at explaining how I got there or why I feel that way. I'm pretty good at pivoting when somebody convinces me otherwise. Like, no, wait, you're right. That's a different data point or a different way of seeing it. And okay, let's do that. You know, I'm not attached to ideas, but every time I have one of those assassins who's coming at me, they tend not to understand what drives me or my intentions. And they're misreading them as a needing to be right or trample over. And sometimes you just have to go back into their office and remind each other that we're motivated in different ways, but it's not personal, it's work. And share a bourbon. And share a bourbon, yes. <laughs> so the world has changed a lot since you started carrying a bag of diamonds around. <laughs> we've got social now, we still got television, it's changed somewhat. Mm -hmm. We've got radio, but instead of being just broadcast, it's over all these platforms. So we've got a podcast today, print's still here. How do you make it all work today? How do you think about that media mix? In the digital era, I think we've all become so enamored of the new neck shiny. And I love being on the leading edge. I love trying things first. And part of why we go into marketing is not to do the same thing over and over, but to learn. So testing and learning in these new spaces as they come up and learning to snap and pin and post and tweet and whatever the next flavor of things is, is important. But one of the things, and I learned it in Microsoft, I learned the power of broadcast media, which you know I started in digital, and I really learned the power of scale. That's something I'm seeing with clients here at iHeart over and over again is the power of radio to reach 9 out of 10 Americans is not something to be overlooked. And I think sometimes our human biases are really getting in the way of our ability to honestly balance math and magic. You know, I say it to clients pretty much every day, right? Like you need to really look at the math and then decide which magic fits into that math. I think it's a little less matching luggage campaigns than we'd seen before. One thing we've learned from the digital era as far as like planning across silos is you really do in the clutter that's out there today, you really do need to have a voice and a connection with your consumer all the time. Right. It used to be you could do a campaign for three months at big weight and go away for a while and then wait a few months and come back. I do think brands have to have a more real-time, everyday touch point with their consumers. So finding the places where you can afford to do that and then finding things worth saying every day, that to me is a little bit of the magic of today's marketing landscape. And then from a math standpoint, you know, I think it's really being honest with yourself about the thing you might love and it's really cool and sexy and maybe it'll win you a can lion. But if four people saw it, does it matter? Talk about the power of frequency. Yeah, I'd say, you know, if I look at things I've learned here at iHeart, I think frequency and audio 
is particularly powerful pairing. There's a lot of brands out there. There's a lot of products out there that I actually love and would go buy, and they're just not in my head. We've had this conversation, uh, you know, about alcohol brands, right? I stand at the bar and I go, what do I want tonight? Sometimes it's just short form, high frequency, remind me who you are, remind me what you do, remind me that you even exist. And I'm going to be inclined to buy it if I'm in that target and you put yourself in my consideration set. Sometimes we overthink the message. The old top of mind. Yeah. You were there at the beginning of the internet. You were there, obviously, at the beginning of Diamond, so we'll put that aside. <laughs> yes. And you the were mines. there in the beginning of branded content. You really were one of the pioneers Before of anybody content. put that word together. I know. It was yeah, like, I don't know what it was before. <laughs> Custom so, publishing. So how did you sort of start with branded content? Where did the idea come from, and how did it wind up being a thing? That was, in so many ways, probably one of the best jobs I ever had, and it started as an experiment with this crazy woman, Joanne Bradford, who was never going to make it at Microsoft and came from the outside and was going to drive ad sales on the internet in a company that didn't even like saying the word advertising. I think at that time, we called advertising the merchant business, and she had aspirations for where billions of dollars out there in the ad market and going to shift to digital. I met her. I didn't work for her and we'd met a couple of times in different meetings and you know she'd take me aside and she said all right you get marketing i'm going to get you in any room you want the best marketers in the world the biggest companies i'll get you in those rooms i need you to bring them ideas that we can do on the internet because i'll never make a billion dollars on hotmail banners i need ideas i'll give you the resources you need you tell me what you need we'll figure it out and i was like wow it's kind of a crazy cool opportunity how can i say no she's this force of nature And I said, okay, and I started this little experiment with two people doing what became a $100 million branded content business a few years later. I just listened to great marketers, heard what they wanted, and then I came back, talked to engineers about how could I do a thing that does that? And we found our way to all of the earliest innovations for brands online. We made things move. We created experiences on top of words. We eventually got into video. We put games in messaging. And and all of those things came out of sitting with a marketer and going, how are you trying to launch that cola? And, you know, who are you trying to reach with that car? And then finding a way to connect it back to technology. So for me, you know, branded content was where I learned everything about digital marketing and how to build a business without even meaning to. I also learned that you have to not stay in a box. We fought with engineers and we fought with homepage editorial people and we broke probably every rule there was to break within the MSN organization. But we built a brand new business and a brand new category for the internet. So, you know, maybe we need to break some more things around here. So branded content Mm -hmm. today, Mm -hmm. too much, not enough? Good question. I think it depends where, you know, as marketers, we're not known for restraint. We tend to overdo that which works or obviously I'm biased, but I think branded audio content is the next giant green field. The numbers of people listening to podcasts, the ability for a brand to say, what's the conversation I want to have? Who should I have it with? What are the topics we should talk about? And then curate that conversation and that content themselves or with a partner. There's an endless number of stories brands have the right to tell. And I think audio is so fast and efficient and people are listening more and watching less. Branded Instagram pages, maybe we have enough. I don't know. We normally say, okay, recommend a book. Mm -hmm. Well, since we're in this business, we have to say recommend a podcast (laughs) and recommend a book. What podcast do you recommend? What book do you recommend? 
I tend to read probably more fiction than nonfiction. But when it comes to like work and business books, I always go back to Strength Finders. Every team I ever worked with or managed, I go back to it because the core idea of reminding yourself that it's okay to play to your strengths and you're probably never going to be good at the stuff you suck at. Surround yourself with people who are good at the stuff you suck at. It's just such a fundamental principle I've tried to live my career around. And then, you know, I've been uh, trying to catch up on a lot of our new iHeart podcasts. Again, I'm a little biased, but I love Spit. As a marketer, it's a branded podcast that we've done with 23andMe, the DNA test company. DNA is a fascinating topic. It's changing everything in our sense of identity and connection and who we are. There's just an endless array of stories to be told. So I love this idea of mashing up interesting brainiac academics with fascinating pop culture people and seeing what happens in a conversation about identity and belonging. It's raw and it's real, but it's also great marketing because it's really built on the truth of who 23andMe are as a brand. And they're just scratching the surface of stories they can tell. I want to sort of close it out. You've gone all the way from Rhode Island. You've been the bag man for uh, Diamonds. <laughs> yes, for... You've been uh, at Microsoft and really the go-go years of really inventing the Internet. And you're at iHeart. You really have played a pivotal role here in really reinventing this whole audio world and taking this company from the old clear channel, one platform broadcast radio to this multi-platform company that is iHeart and that has a whole different relationship with consumers and with our advertising partners. What's one thread that's gone through it all? We close up today and say, this is Gail Troberman, genius CMO. The one thread about Gail is? I'm passionate about great conversations that lead to great ideas with great people. And those are the three things when they come together in my life. I've always been at my best, performing my best, accomplishing great results, and having a shitload of fun. Gail, thanks. Here are some things I picked up from Gail. One, according to Gail, brands no longer have the luxury of dropping a big campaign for a few months and then going away to plan another one. Instead, brands need a real, everyday touch point with consumers. Two, if you're looking for a mentor, Gail always recommends find the person who doesn't think like you do. It's too easy to surround yourself with people who have the same background and skill set as you do. Three, Gail believes there's still room to do some great branded content because, as she puts it, there's an endless number of stories brands have the right to tell. And a quick plug here, I'm a little biased that audio is the fastest and most efficient way to tell those stories. Thanks for listening. I'm Bob Pittman. That's it for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening to Math & Magic, a production of iHeartRadio. The show is hosted by Bob Pittman. Special thanks to Sue Schillinger for booking and wrangling our wonderful talent, which is no small feat. Nikki Etor for pulling research, Bill Plax and Michael Azar for their recording help, our editor Ryan Murdoch, and of course, Gail, Raul, Eric, Angel, Noel, Mango, and everyone who helped bring this show to your ears. Until next time. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. 
to the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like, I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get ready for Smart Money Happy Hour. Pull up a chair, it's the happy hour you wish your friends were having. Mix two money experts with some hot takes and a splash of nostalgia, and you get me, George Camel. And me, Rachel Cruz, talking unfiltered about what's going on in the world, pop culture, and how to afford a life you love. We're talking money, celebrity budgets, and my budget for my two French Bulldogs. It's a lot. <laughs> You'll hear it all on Smart Money Happy Hour. Listen on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's Reality starting May 8th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.